0: Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preach the following sermon on September 17th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And this sermon is part of a series that I'm preaching on um, that's celebrating the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Today's sermon is about that classic Protestant doctrine known as sola scriptura, scripture alone. And what that means is that the Bible is our ultimate authority, guiding our Christian faith and practice. Indeed, John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist movement, believed that the Bible was infallibly true, that if there's even one mistake in Scripture, there may as well be a thousand. And if there's even one falsehood, then Scripture did not come from the God of truth. But I get it in our culture, the Bible's authority is under constant attack. Well, it's even under attack within our church, within our United Methodist Church. I'm going to make reference in this sermon to a book that was recently written by Adam Hamilton, the pastor of the world's largest United Methodist Church. I take issue with some things that he says about the authority of Scripture. I really want us Christians to be confident that God has given us exactly the Bible that he wants us to have, that we can trust it, trust every word of it, that we can build our lives on it. Anyway, our scripture today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. To make sense of what I'm about to say, let me define a term with which most Protestants are mostly unfamiliar. That term is Purgatory. This is the Roman Catholic doctrine that says that when a Christian dies, they will likely have to be cleansed of their sins or punished for their sins prior to going to heaven. Now, how long this period of punishment lasts depends on the kind of life that the person lived. And and before you ask, know that doctrine is not found anywhere in Scripture. To make matters worse, Church officials back in the 16th century were going around and telling mostly poor people that if they if they were willing to pay enough money, money which was used ultimately to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the church had the power to take time off of their sentence in purgatory or to reduce the sentences of their loved ones who would already died, who were currently suffering in purgatory and who wouldn't want to do that. For their loved ones. Many thoughtful Christians at the time believed that this church practice was corrupt, greedy, and unbiblical. And one of these critics was Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk and theology professor who, who put his objections in writing when he penned what is now called the 95 Theses and posted it on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. Now, Luther put these objections in writing, and and, and this launched what became the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, this October 31st. There were a whole host of doctrines and practices that had crept into the medieval church that Luther also objected to. Papal infallibility, the, that, that, the idea that saving grace only came through the priests as they administered the sacraments. The idea that your salvation depends in part on what you do. The idea that you can pray to Mary and the other saints. And Luther objected to these doctrines and these practices on the basis, first, of what the Bible says, what God's word says. His point was that everything that we believe as Christians, everything we put into practice must ultimately be based on what God tells us in his word. And it can't contradict that. Luther made this point emphatically when he appeared before a church tribunal in 1521. The church prosecutor asked Luther, will you recant, recant of the things that you've been preaching, teaching and publishing? Luther said the following, which which ought to stir the hearts of any of us good Protestants. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, by which he meant reasoning from what scripture says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. This is part of our heritage. We are Methodists in part because of these principles and, and doctrines that guided Martin Luther, and I've already preached about one of these doctrines, justification by faith alone. I spent two sermons preaching about that. But our belief in that doctrine, in fact, our belief in any doctrine, isn't based on anything that Martin Luther said or taught. It's based on what the Bible says, what God's word clearly teaches And this, in many ways, was the the most important principle to emerge from the Reformation. We must base our Christian faith and practice on what God has revealed in his written word, the Bible. Everyone else, including popes and pastors, everything else, including church councils, make mistakes. They are imperfect. They are fallible. The Bible, by contrast, doesn't make mistakes. It's perfect. It is infallible, as Orthodox Christianity has always taught. In a sermon, John Wesley, the the founder of our Methodist movement, said that today's scripture from 2 Timothy implies that the Bible is, quote, infallibly true. Indeed, in a journal entry dated July 24th, 1776, Gosh, what was going on back then? Uh, Wesley was complaining about a writer who said that not all of the Bible was inspired. That uh, some of its writers made mistakes. Wesley said in his journal entry, Nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. For this reason, Wesley wrote in the preface to one of his published collections of sermons. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end. He came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here it is. Uh, Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, which means a man of one book. Wesley aspired to be a man of one book, that one book being the word of God, the Bible. Now he had, he read plenty of books. He was an Oxford Don. He was incredibly well-read and well-educated, but he based his life on one book, which was God's word. And he wanted us Methodists to do the same. And even as I say this, Perhaps you're thinking of a dozen objections to believing that the Bible is, as Wesley said, infallibly true. Especially if, if you've read, well, the world's most popular United Methodist pastor, Adam Hamilton, and what he's written and blogged about from a recent book of his called Making Sense of the Bible. I read it recently. Hamilton offers a couple of deeply troubling unbiblical and unorthodox ideas about the Bible. I, I, I've, I've shared these criticisms with him directly on Twitter. He replied, he said he hopes to offer a response uh, this week, and I hope he does. The first thing he says is, is that we can divide all of scripture into three buckets Into bucket number one, we can put most of the Bible, he says. It reflects God's heart, character, and timeless will for human beings. Other scripture belongs in what he calls bucket number two. Now, this is scripture that reflected God's will at the time, but is no longer binding, like the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses—we don't have to get circumcised anymore. We don't have to follow Jewish dietary laws. We don't have to follow uh, Jewish purity laws. That sort of thing. Acts fifteen, in, New, in the book of Galatians, and elsewhere in the New Testament, tells us that we are we are in that sense set free from the law. So so far so good. The problem is with Hamilton's bucket number. Three, There is scripture, he says, that never fully expressed the heart, character or will of God. In other words, the Bible got it wrong for Hamilton. This is a large bucket because it includes, as far as I can tell, every instance in the Old Testament in which God acts with violence towards people, either directly directly. Um, through the the great flood or through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or indirectly through Joshua and the the conquest of of Canaan. Um, Throughout the book, Hamilton argues that we can't reconcile these depictions of God's violence with the forgiveness and mercy demonstrated by Jesus Christ. I disagree in doing so, in my view, he underestimates the problem of sin. The way it makes all of us enemies of God, according to Romans 5.10. Enemies who deserve God's wrath, Romans 1.18 and following. When God acts with violence in the Bible, he does so in righteous judgment against evil and sin. We all deserve God's judgment. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. And this is one reason... The Bible shows us these instances of God's judgment. This is the starting point of the gospel. If we don't understand this, then we don't understand why God would send his son Jesus into the world in the first place. We are all sinners. Besides, you know what's even more violent than anything God or Israel does in the Old Testament? An eternity separated from God. In hell. And most of what we know about hell by far comes from the direct teaching of Jesus himself. Would Adam Hamilton put some of the red letter words of Christ in the Gospels into bucket number three? God forbid. But by his own logic, I don't see how he couldn't. Or what about Revelation 19, which describes Jesus? As a sword-wielding rider on the white horse, whose robe is dipped in the blood of God's enemies, who avenges evil. Is this passage, along with so much of Revelation, in bucket number three? I hope not. The good news of the gospel is that God loved us too much to to leave us in our sins, to leave us in this condition in which we're separated from God and bound for hell, to leave us in this place without hope. He sent his son Jesus to atone for our sins through his death on the cross, that through faith in him we might be saved. If the Bible's depiction of God's violent judgment of sin and evil scares us, then that's good because it ought to send us to the cross of his son, Jesus, where we find only mercy, love, forgiveness, and grace. Brothers and sisters, there can be no bucket number three because Paul tells us in today's scripture that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All means all. I'm going to say more about what it means that scripture is God breathed and some of the objections that we have in part two of this sermon next week. But for now, suffice it to say, no less a Bible scholar than N.T. Wright, a retired bishop in the Church of England, has said we can be confident that we have exactly the Bible that God wanted us to have every word of it. Martin Scorsese um, is a, one of the world's most acclaimed movie directors. He made uh, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, among many other acclaimed uh, films. Last year, he made a deeply personal film that it was called um, Silence. It was about the first missionaries, the first Catholic Jesuit uh, missionaries who went to Japan in the 17th century to bring the gospel for the first time to the Japanese. And um, the movie, surprisingly, from my perspective, got rave reviews from some very theologically conservative evangelical uh, publications like Christianity Today or um, the the Gospel Coalition website. The movie takes Christian faith very seriously. And from what I've read in its own way, it it affirms the truth of it. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I ordered it on DVD a couple of days ago. But from what I read, it's tough stuff. I mean, it's, it's brutal. It's graphic. I mean, you see Christians getting tortured and killed. Um, but I bring it up because of the title, Silence. In the movie, the Japanese are doing all these horrible, unspeakably evil things to these Christian martyrs. And one of the missionaries wants to know why God remains silent through it all. Why won't God say something, answer his questions, uh, tell uh, these believers what they ought to do, how to handle this situation? Why does God remain silent in the face of so much suffering in his name? As one evangelical reviewer pointed out, however, this might be the difference between a Catholic a uh, movie and a protestant movie why on earth would we imagine that god is silent after all in this book we believe god has given us over 750,000 words he has breathed out over 750,000 words to speak to us This is the primary means by which God speaks to us. It's not like any other book. It's not that God spoke to these people 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. They wrote it down. It applied to their lives and it doesn't apply to us. No, these words God spoke back then and continues to speak to us and continues to show us how these words apply to our lives and what we're going through today. Notice I said today. Don't say to yourself I've already read the Bible. I I know what it says. No, you need the Bible today and tomorrow and the day after that. Even if you've read it dozens of times. Mm -hmm. Dwight Moody was was a famous... Evangelist in Chicago in the 19th century. And he described one of his church members who said that, that he hoped to come to church, to come to a series of revivals that Moody was preaching and get enough of God's word that it would last him the rest of his life. He would just be set. And Moody said to this person that he may as well try to eat enough breakfast at one time to last him a lifetime. Even if you had a huge breakfast this morning and you were stuffed to the gills and you couldn't imagine eating another thing, guess what? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you'll probably want breakfast again. God's word is like that. You can't get enough of it. In commenting on today's scripture, speaking of N.T. Wright, um, he put it like this. When Paul says that scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, it means clearly that as we read scripture, it will from time to time inform us in no uncertain terms that something we've been doing is out of line with God's will. Sometimes this will lie plainly on the surface of the text. Other times, as we read a passage, we will begin to hear the voice of God gently or perhaps not so gently telling us that this story applies to this area of our lives or perhaps that one. When that happens, as it may often do for those who read the Bible prayerfully, we do well to pay attention God has a personal word that he wants to speak to you today about something specific that you are dealing with, that you're going through. He wants to talk to you about your financial fears and struggles. He wants to talk to you about the problem you're having at work or a problem you're having in your marriage or a problem you're having with your kids. He wants to talk to you about that drinking problem that you keep telling yourself isn't really a problem. He wants to steer you away from that extramarital affair that you're coming dangerously close to having. He wants to talk to you about your pride, about your anger, about your fears. He wants to reassure you that he'll take care of you if you'll just trust in him and lean not on your own understanding he wants to tell you how much he loves you even when you don't even love yourself are you listening christian are you are we listening hampton methodist church yes if your bible remains closed when you're not here on sunday if it, if it stays on the shelf or, or if it stays in your car or if it mostly just stays closed during the week and you're not reading it, you're not studying it, or you're not even taking advantage of opportunities that our church has to read and study the Bible, if you're not doing these things that I'm afraid, I'm afraid, the answer is no, you're not listening. Give us the grace to change, God. God. As one writer said recently, don't say God is silent when your Bible is closed. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're we're on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, Georgia. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11 o'clock. Hope to see you there.